0: Thank you, and welcome back to Terps in the City. Terps in the City is a podcast that talks about everything cannabis, all things cannabis. This season is all about my journey. I'm Cheryl Murray Powell Esquire. I'm a cannabis, agricultural, dietary, supplement, and trade attorney. And I have relocated back to New York. I go between New York and my residency in Florida. And we're just talking about hot topics. So with that said, today's guest is none other than Mar Stringer. Mar and I came across each other at MJ Unpacked. It was a conference in New York. It was the second staging of MJ Unpacked. And we just instantly had chemistry and wanted to talk about what's the future of the New York cannabis industry. Mar is from New York as on the show, New York is like always in the backdrop of the conversation for this particular season. Mar, how are you today?
1: I'm awesome, I'm awesome. How are you?
0: Well, I'm awesome as well. I'm really glad (laughs) that we were able to connect and that we got to have a really good conversation yesterday. And I was like, no, we gotta get this recorded. We gotta document what's going on, this energy, this buzz that's happening around not only the New York cannabis industry, but the national cannabis industry, the global cannabis industry. So I just wanted to talk to you today and kind of have you share your perspective You're a native New Yorker, so let's talk about your experience being a New Yorker and being a cannabis consumer. What's your cannabis history as far as when did you, from your start of consumption, when did you take a direction, take a turn into the activism area of of being a part of the industry?
1: Well, I think just being a part of uh, a lot of industry in, in America, Black folks get put into the activism thing just because it's not many of us in the space. It's only 2%. So if you get in, people are gonna be looking, they're gonna be watching. And how do you represent? I, I want to represent for those who have been disenfranchised, who never been accepted, you know. That's my class, you know. And I just want to correct you because I'm from New York and you are in New York now, and yeah. there's a lot of gang stuff going on. So when you say I'm a New Yorker, that means New York, New York. You understand? That's like Manhattan. You <laughs> understand? I'm from I'm from Long Island, New York, strong island. <laughs> they'll tell you strong island but when they say strong island they mean long island you know
0: so that's so funny because i'm also from long island so i was born in i was born in north shore hospital okay uh, grew up in great neck okay went to junior high school at turtle hook junior high school in so i am from Long island too so um, we have that in common um right now i'm in new york city i'm here in harlem love the vibe love the cadence of harlem i was just visiting family in on long island i got two brothers who live on long island uh, one okay. one's still in uniondale and one's further out on the island so, okay all right it's all love it's all love between the counties all love between the boroughs yeah. but I, I i love that you represent long island uh, yeah, with, strong. Strength, with strength yeah, yeah what, strong part of, what part of long island are you from
1: freeport long island nassau freeport. county Right oh, there, biking Flav,
0: was Flavor Flav from Freeport.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. We used to see them walking up and down the streets. Flavor Flav, right on. I'm right on. I live on Independence, Independence in Rutland.
0: Okay, my grandfather,
1: awesome. yeah. My grandfather built that house in like 1960 or something like that.
0: Wow,
1: yeah. My awesome. mother was he's born.
0: Generational,
1: yep, yeah. yeah.
0: Awesome. Is uh, Eddie Murphy is he from Freeport too?
1: Yep, yeah. he's out. Uh, he's he's Buster yeah. Rhymes, Q Tip, you know. Oh, we got, Q-tip. Yeah, we got a lot of flavor. But what happens is a lot of us go to the boroughs and stuff like I frequent in Brooklyn. I was in Brooklyn a lot coming up, you know, but Long Island was always, you know, just, you know, amazing place for me to grow up. I loved it. I loved the school. I went to Freeport, you know.
0: I had some friends, some people out in Freeport. So it's good to know that we have that as well in common, Mm -hmm. the Long Island uh, flavor. Mm -hmm. With that said, let's talk about in New York whether and having the, that cannabis experience. So, when you first started consuming cannabis, was it something that you kind of hid hid from your parents, or you didn't have to? That were they more liberal, or what was that experience like for you?
1: It was it was really weird because the older kids used to smoke in, ba- in back in my house. I didn't smoke, but I loved the smell. Yeah, and you know, just one day, I just eventually went out there and and I just grabbed the blunt, the Philly blunt. Yeah. from them and I cracked it open and I, they were like what you doing I was like because they were older kids and I was like I'm twisting up and they're like you don't know how to twist you ain't never smoked before so nobody asked me to it just it just called me and it smelled yeah. so good and one day I started smoking but it was really the definitive moment for me was my arrest after my first arrest at 14 and okay. after I got out I was just like yeah I'm still gonna start I'm still gonna smoke and it was like right. especially I was like I heard like okay you know this this love affair is going to cost you. Are you with it? And I'm like, yeah, I'm with it, dude. I can't live without smoking. <laughs>
0: Well, yeah, and and let's talk about that. So first of all, one thing we're not doing on the show is condoning adolescent use, youth use of cannabis. Fortunately, Mm -hmm. with legalization, there's been good progress as far as really specifying that it is an adult use market. So Mm -hmm. I just want to make that clear. But being a youth, it, it, it does come into your world and your environment. And, you know, a lot of cannabis users, it's not based on addiction that they continue to use. Cannabis, but it's it's really a a form of self medication, and yeah, absolutely that it has these medication medical related properties. So I just wanted to to clarify that. But let's let's go back to that fourteen year old you and that arrest. What was the quantity that you had uh, to be arrested? I had I
1: had about an ounce on me, but I didn't sell anything. It was actually a white kid came up to me I was sitting on the bench with my friends we were smoking mm-hmm. over there right next to the Freeport High School mm-hmm. there's a, a duck pond and okay. we was we was smoking and you know this white kid came up to us he was 13 mm-hmm. um, he came up to us and he was like hey we got we weed, got we weed. was like nah we don't right. have he was like yes you do he said, was really badging us and he walked away then walked back and I was like yo I'm going to give him the dutch guts at the time I was collecting the insides of the cigar a friend of mine was was uh, in juvie or whatever. He was in a program where, you know, it wasn't a jail, but it was a program, like a, a home or something like that. And the cigar paper they would use, the gut. So I had that and the white white boy gave me $20 and I gave him the Dutch guts
0: mm-hmm. and uh,
1: he walked off. And another white guy came up to me. He's like, hey, that, that, that kid up there, he's, he's calling the cops on you guys. was like, what?
0: Really?
1: Yeah, he's like, he's, he's saying you guys robbed him. He's calling the cops on you. So... I was like, whatever. We didn't believe it. It was like, yo, this dude tried to buy weed. How is he going to call the cops? And uh, so we we sat there, smoked and chilled. And uh, next thing you know, sure enough, the cops came. And um, that was my first arrest. I didn't have any arrest. So to me, you know, when you're doing something and you're accepting it yourself, um, it's not something that's bad to you. You know, I was always a star athlete. I played sports, wrestling. I'm on the wall in my school three times, three different years, you know, so.
0: yeah. You were like a high achieving student. You were a a scholar athlete at the time, never arrested and kind of sounds like a setup (laughs) with (laughs) him coming over, trying to buy and then. He
1: ended up getting arrested, too. He got taken to juvie. And I guess we get back to that point, you know, at what age is a a child and adult? Because here it is, you know, yo, the dude, the the stress that I was going through, that we were going through, smoking was definitely a way for me to self-medicate. And at 14, they charged me as an adult. I was charged as an adult. Sale to a minor. It doesn't get any more egregious than that. That's a high charge. That's like a class felony or something like that. Sale to a minor and attempted robbery. That's what the charges were.
0: So you, you're sitting there with your friends, minding your own business, and then this white kid comes over to you and asks to buy weed, you say, deny, and and say, you're not a drug dealer at, a, at all. And mm. he keeps coming back. And then you're like, all right, I'm just going to give him these Dutch guts, whatever. Yep, yep. And then after that, he walks away, calls the police, and then both of you get arrested. Yep. So this mm. kid that just purchased from, from you, and then You, not being a drug dealer, but just Mm -hmm. a kid, high-performing kid that was a cannabis user, maybe didn't have the, um, a little naive in the fact that what that would mean for you, for you to get. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. 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 And then you both get arrested at the same exact time, you and this kid, and you are charged as an adult Mm -hmm. for selling him, the person who approached you, for the marijuana, for the the cannabis or ganja, you are arrested for selling it to him. He's charged, but as a minor, and you were char- charged as an adult. Same yeah. incident, same exact time. He was the initiator, and then you had to be charged as an adult. Were you, you were in, in holding with adults at that time, or were you both held in juvenile? Detention? No. So I would hope
1: he got charged. He was taken away by the police. You okay. Know?
0: So it's he possible shot. he did not get charged.
1: Possible he didn't get charged. You okay. know? But yeah, I was just taken away to a holding cell. They called my mother to come get me, you know, and I believe John Padrangolo, He's in New York. I have to relink up with him. He was my, he was my, my child lawyer, John Padrangolo. Okay. Shout out yeah.
0: to John Padrangolo. Padrangolo, Yeah. Pedrangelo.
1: Pedrangelo. Pedrangelo.
0: Shout out to yeah. him.
1: Maybe you a uh, lawyer in New York? In New York, maybe. Yeah, I'd
0: love to come across him again. He can help yeah. with the Justice Foundation. He really, he and really, just to say say thanks because yeah, even though yeah, we you were charged to a, a, a charged as an adult, it was plead down to a lesser charge. Correct.
2: Yeah. Yep.
1: Yeah. Four years later, it was plead down to something where I just had community service or something like that. It, if I stayed out of trouble or didn't catch any more charges for some type some some time, it was sealed. So I was able to get private investigator jobs. I was able to get security jobs in Georgia I was able to pass a background check and stuff some years later to get jobs where I had to be you know you know go through some extensive background stuff
0: okay well that, that I'm glad to hear that but it doesn't the story doesn't always end that way the same situation can happen and someone's charged as an adult and they end up being incarcerated in in prison with grown men and yeah. vulnerable we saw that with the Center Park 5 Central Park five and and with other situations that's how quickly you can go from hanging out with your friends to being you know a felon being being incarcerated losing your your youth and that happened time after time after time again so you know thank you for sharing that you you indicated that was your first arrest were there other marijuana arrests in in your future here yeah
1: I in high school alone, I had six open cases at the time, and then I graduated and caught another two charges in '99. I was looking at sixteen to twenty-two years mm-hmm. behind stuff that wasn't mine. I was in a, a passenger in a stolen car, but my two latest marijuana arrests were in 2016. I had another sale charge to an undercover Boston police officer. Right uh, in 2016, it was fairly legal, and it was a, it was a gray area in Massachusetts. There wasn't anything open. And as long as there weren't any dispensaries open, it pretty much was fair game. You know, yeah. the people voted that they wanted it. So I, I had a community. I had about a hundred people in my community. I was all over the place from California, you know, Colorado, NorCal, LA, you know, all over the place. You know, getting getting bud and, and, and getting it to where it need to be.
0: Well, that and and that's clearly makes you you legacy from the perspective of you know you've been involved in in the industry and you or definitely justice involved by the definition of uh, New York justice involved. You know, you're, you're currently not residing in, in the state, but you now you do have ties to, to New York. So, very interesting, you know, history and it's a, it's a very common history. Just looking forward to, to now and, and to you turning to Activision. How does it feel to see this booming legal industry when you were self-medicating as a teenager, and your future was disrupted in that way.
1: As a consumer, I think it's lit. It's amazing. As a consumer, it's amazing.
0: Yeah,
1: to be a part of that that aspect of it. It's it's no longer stigmatized. It's another mass incarceration two with these task force. You know, you see the numbers in Colorado after legalization, fifty mm-hmm. you percent know, um, increase in rest for black and brown, and the same thing in Massachusetts. The arrest rate increased for cannabis for disparity in cannabis, for black and brown. So, you know, there's going to be like Colorado. I'm intimate with, with Colorado. I was dealing with a family in Colorado for years. And then st- once they went legal, everything changed. Our relationship changed. We couldn't do business anymore. They were terrified. And, you know, it was just a, a scary place for people after legalization, those in the legacy market. So,
0: Yeah. There's two ways to look at it. We're glad that it's legal and other people don't have to go through what you, what you went through. but on the other side, you know there's a lot of black and brown bodies and, and, and others and you know there's some white people and some some others incarcerated currently to this day for small amounts mm-hmm. people are continuing to be uh, arrested for uh, small amounts of, of marijuana cannabis. Yeah. To this day. So we, we we can't think that we've already arrived and that the fight is over. There's still a, a tremendous amount of work that that needs to be done. So.
1: Absolutely. You know, when you talk about, you know, the legacy marketing and, <laughs> and what is the future for for that industry? I just, you know, it, it's it, 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 that's why I'm anti activism, you know, because to me, real activism. would be on the front lines. They would be at the they would take buses from state to state to these courthouses where they're locking people up. They're locking children up. To me, that's the activism. You know, I've seen people, you know, like this whole thing, the prison school pipeline is all about money, mass incarceration. So, you know, when you have a an engine like this and people are getting paid and stuff, why aren't people being activists over there?
0: Yeah, I think I think it's a complicated issue, and I've gone back and forth on the issue myself. So myself as an activist, I was that person who was like, I'm outraged, I'm getting involved, I'm going to use my privilege as a lawyer, and, and I did go state to state, and I did testify at municipalities, and and courts and join defense teams in other states and and going to the legislature in different states and things like that. But part of that is I, I do have a certain amount of privilege and I do have the luxury of the flexibility to do that. So I like to look at activism as like a multi-tiered thing where there's some people who can do that and the ones who can, should, absolutely. And there are some people who can, their activism is through their funding. And even if we when we look at the end of slavery and the people who were evangelizing against it. Some people, it was just their finances that they contributed and they hid behind a cloak. Or there were some people who opened up their homes and, and that was their form of activism. So I think similarly in our current situation, you, you have to be realistic about what's, what's in your realm of possibilities. People with kids, they may not be able to go you know, to their capital, but they can go to their district office when their kid's at school. So I think it's really being creative and and showing people different ways that they can be activists because all of that effort really helps. Like the people who are just funding the movement, that does tremendous work. Like the people who fund the Justice Foundation, like that allows me to be in New York and take the train to, if I need to go to Mass or take the train to DC or I need to, that's really what helps fund that activity and so I can feed my kid and be that person all over the mm-hmm. place so it, it really depends and I think we need to start evolving our thinking with regards to what activism looks like because all of it's welcome <laughs> all of us needed because we're so far from the finish line like we've come really far but there's so much longer to go and it, it'll take everybody
1: yeah um, I, I believe it's needed you know but me I, I feel like it's a way they use to trick people out of their spot you know you're yeah. not gonna, you know, and I've i faced it directly in Massachusetts. I was naive and you know, thinking, okay, you know, everybody who's everybody's just gonna get behind me because I found something that was wrong and I'm gonna be loud about it. But also the another thing that turns me off about activism is they yeah. didn't like the fact that we had solutions, you know. Right. So usually you're just jumping up and down and saying something is wrong when right. somebody has solutions, you know, and, and a solution needs to be win-win for everybody.
0: Sure. Or tolerable, maybe tolerable for everyone. Maybe it's not necessarily a win, but it's it, you can tolerate it because it's the right thing to do.
1: Yeah, you know when you're talking about business in America, man. You know I like I like to stick with win wins. You know because like this other stuff when we're looking for goodwill, it never happens. We don't see it. Right. Right. I like I, I like to see what looks wrong. What me what went wrong? And a lot of things sound good, mm-hmm. but. You know, when you're talking about equity first, for instance, you're, right. you're talking about equity first, but equity didn't go first. You know, you know, right. big, big business, big money went first. So, you know, we had to position ourselves, you know, to say, OK, equity first doesn't mean we're going to go first. We have to position ourselves and them to go at the same time so we can go. And I think that's kind of what we were focused on with our efforts, you know, solutions, you know, just, you know, bringing up solutions.
0: So I, one last question on growing up in New York. Was that arrest the end of your athleticism in, in high school?
1: No, we had choice. I had a choice. I had a choice, mm-hmm. you know, and I chose, you know, to me, it's, it's a deeper thing going on when you can say that, OK, by the third grade, we can see if these children are going to prison or not. I think right. we have to look at our school system and, and what's being taught. And I chose, you know, a sense of self and a sense of pride and a sense of self-worth. And I had that on the streets. I had that you know, mm-hmm. I had that I was liberated. You know, when I was in, in classroom, I was being taught, you know, some things that was going against my spirit and my energy. And yeah. I leave I a lot of these things because it's tribalism. We get out there in these gangs, that's tribalism. Right. But I believe a lot of us get turned off by school because it's, it's spiritual. We don't see ourselves in the message. It's a white mm-hmm. supremacy message, you know, and anybody our age, you know, should be looking to have real solutions. That's why I don't like equity, social equity and You know, you know, civil rights, these terms is just elusive terms to couch white supremacy. You know, I I think we need to be direct in this era of of information technology and kind of talk about what it is or we're just going to pass it. Our children are going to inherit it. And the white people that are alive today, us alive today, we didn't experience that gruesome style racism. But we so we should be working together to intellectualize it. And I'm not going to close my eyes and act like things don't exist. No way near am I the smartest person on the planet. So i am be looking at people who went to, you know, institutions and stuff for solutions. But everybody should be talking about real solutions right now. I'm like, I'm not, we're not with, you know, like, that's why I said, like, with Mm -hmm. civil rights, we was doing all the activism, but we didn't get nothing. We didn't organize no businesses. We didn't get no, we don't, we don't own, we don't control no industry out of that. We didn't get anything out of that. Asians did, Jews did, you know, groups of women's did, but we didn't, you know, as a group. And we were at the forefront of activism being loud.
0: Yeah, I we can talk about that. So one one I agree with um, the conversation about having solutions. It's, solutions are the key. I think when we're look when we're talking about remedies, it's really important that we know what type of remedy we're we're interested in, what we what remedy looks like to us and sometimes it's not a financial payout. I'm thinking of like the USDA lawsuit the Pigford cases that took place huge um, suit of black farmers against the USDA. And at the end of the day, especially with the liquidated damages, They ended up getting, what, $50,000 per farmer and lawyers made a lot of money, but we didn't see the change. What we're realizing and kind of looking at now, and I was at a farmer's, not a farmer's conference, but a conference with a lot of organizations of color and a few, quite a few were farming organizations and we came together as farming organizations. And what we realized is that financial payout wasn't enough. It really, we needed to really restructure and encourage the USDA to restructure how they approach things, how they treated farmers of color, how they encouraged them to or facilitated them getting loans. So I think you're absolutely right that when we're thinking about solutions, it's not always the the payment. It's, it's not always that superficial thing. It's really looking at the infrastructure and looking at beneath the, the layers and finding out how to change things at its root. So I agree with that. Your comment about social equity—I have a slightly different stance. Like I, I think social equity came in as a concept when it was needed, and there wasn't, there definitely wasn't parity, there definitely wasn't uh, representation. And I think social equity has gotten us more representation and has gotten us more equity. I think it's a an evolving state where one social equity program becomes a catalyst for the next social equity program, which considers all those things, like to the point that where we are with New York and New Jersey and even Connecticut where there's with their social equity council, they're really looking at, okay, there was an intention to create these social equity licenses, but we saw the straw man situations where these people weren't really in control and they were being bought out and they weren't given fair contracts. How do we approach that? So then they've evolved to the point of, Let's start looking at ownership and control and verifying that this person who is that brown face for the application is actually in ownership and has control of the business. It's not that social equity is bad or I don't have issue with the terminology, but it's really looking at it as their steps that needed to take place to get us to here where we were more aware and our eyes are open to this is where we missed the last time we need to make sure that we're creating multi-generational wealth, that we're not just giving them a license that they, one, we haven't given them the tools as far as how to be successful at this business. Two, they can be taken advantage of predators, taken advantage of by predators. And three, they can lose their licenses, but with all these compliance things, and four, we're taxing them so much that they're not making any money. So we needed the first social equity programs. We needed Illinois, we needed the Maryland program and Pennsylvania, and we needed all the diversity language here and there to get us to the point now that we better understand. We're not perfect, but we better understand the challenges facing people of color who are, are issued licenses, especially priority licenses. And now we can put in place the tools to help them to be, be successful. So with, the, with that said, what are your thoughts on the, the more recent programs? Are we getting better at the, the equity conversation from a regulatory well, I'm student? I'm in social
1: equity programs and economic empowerment programs in Massachusetts and I qualify in New York also because of my arrest and stuff, so. yeah. a native New Yorker, so I'm in these programs. But my whole thing was how these programs are being handled, the definition of of what they were trying to do should have been done a different way. It should have been done by arrest because the rest would would have just handled everything because they did it by social equity in Massachusetts. You look at the numbers, white folks got it. White folks got the equity. You understand, you know, in the social equity and they're in the programs, but you look at mass incarceration, this happened to two groups. This happened to black and Brown groups, but the the war on drugs has never been defined. It's not being defined Mm -hmm. for people. So you open up a program, of course people like hey i got an arrest i belong in there i got an arrest but you're talking about a war that was waged on black and brown people at from the highest seat in the land they were talking about war on drugs war on drugs and then they would come camp out come to our neighborhoods and and, and set up camp everywhere It's still being done and just arrest just arrest and children you know and then you're talking about people who are this is a monstrous thing because that's why it's our responsibility as an adult to have these real conversations because you know, you're talking about people who aren't even allowing people to become adults before they enlist them in this war. They're going after children. They're not going after 40-year-old men like myself anymore. You understand right. me? I got an But they they're going after our children. You know, they're mm-hmm. camping out 14-year-old, 15-year-old boys. You look like a man. Come on, let's go. You know, so that's that's the cowardice in this whole thing. The children are on the front line, and these are going to be a new arrest. They're running the new programs on the children. They're not running the same program. You know, they're doing pills or whatever else they're doing with the children. Now, in my days, it was weed and, you know, thugging and selling crack and drugs and, you know, everything else that came with that lifestyle, you know. So mm-hmm. it's a different program, and, you know, the children are on the front lines. Again, my, I'm always going to tell them, you know, I don't need the reparations.
0: Right. I think that's that's important work. And that naivete that you um, experience in your situation, where it's like, if you were an adult man outside with his friends and this white kid comes mm-hmm. over to you to buy some weed, you probably would have been like, nah, <laughs> <It> doesn't <laughs>
2: doesn't
0: smell right. Doesn't the, something, something's not right. But because you're young, you're going to make poor decisions. And I think why, uh, you know, young people across cultures make poor decisions, right? It's just, what are the penalties? And, and, and when with regards to cannabis, we've gone so far down the road of uh, commercialization that we really need to make sure not one more person goes to, to prison for cannabis at this point. So we, we talked a little bit about social equity and then mass incarceration is such, has been such a huge destructive force especially in black and brown communities, but so I, with New York, again, it's an evolution, social equity conversations is about evolution. So New York, they're pioneer with this justice-involved terminology, and you're calling out the fact that, yeah, justice-involved is that group that was most significantly harmed by the war on drugs. So what do, you, what do we say to the other legacy folks who may not have gotten the charge but they built the the structure of the industry. They were maybe harassed by police, but didn't get an arrest. What about those individuals? Is there a way to include legacy that haven't been justice involved? Do you see that as something that is a slippery slope, or do you see that as something that is fair and and just?
1: Well, the whole thing that sparked the movement was people who were being arrested. So it's documented. It's it's enough of us that's documented. In terms of, you know, legacy operators, I've dealt intimately with these individuals and if mm-hmm. they never got arrested, then they, then they, they should have enough money to do what they need to do. I, I, my friend, friend of, a, a direct friend of mine went mm-hmm. from black market to opening up, um, to doing, um, in Cal in California, they have this thing called event planning license mm-hmm. and you can be a weekend warrior cannabis seller at these, at these events which is cool. I think that's a, I think that's a dope way for legacy um, people to get in because they got the money to pay for that license, how much ever the license is for the weekend, pay for that license so Mm -hmm. you can pay your taxes and and, um, operate. But he went from operating in the quote unquote black market to operating in the real market. It was a smooth transition, never been arrested, Mm -hmm. had a farm, you know, Mm -hmm. everything, you know, second generation, you know, weed growing. So they have, they, they they're operating under, under a certain, you know, privilege already anyway, because more than likely their skin is white, you know. So I don't have anything against the legacy dudes. I hustled with them. We made money with them. But mm-hmm. you know, it's it's clear and defined. You know, the whole reason it sparked this movement was because of the numbers, not because of people's feelings. So we need to get back to the numbers. And the numbers are in the mass incarcerated. And that in, that's white, Asian, yeah. Indian, and Black, and everybody under the sun been incarcerated so or arrested, which in my case, I've been arrested. You know, and I've had judgments on cannabis, you know, where I had to do yeah. service and stuff, but I am ever doing no time. That's it's too, um, some people are too spiritual to be in that type of situation where their freedom is confined, you know, and so it's just that's that's just what it is. And that's kind of how I've, you know, get into this thing where, you know, people want to say that I'm an activist because I if I see something wrong, then I'm gonna say it, but I'm not gonna say nothing unless I have a mm-hmm. solution about. That's something other than that you know it's about business and economics and you know capitalism that's america you know i don't like how they try to hang that on i wasn't arrested for you know activism i was arrested for selling weed you know commerce you know economics you understand yeah. so i'm here and be you no know, activist and be your martyr you know so you can get in and everybody else can get in which happened to me in massachusetts i'm not, inter- I'm not interested in that even we move together and and move under the best solutions, which we have a solution, or you know, we have solutions. You know, I'm I'm I'm, move, I'm ready to move with anybody with solutions, you know. But if you don't got mad, I'm here to get this paper. I got five children, you know. I got a beautiful wife, you know. I'm ready to make money off of cannabis. I'm here to make money, money.
0: What do what do we say to you know the people who may not have been arrested, but they lost custody of their kids for certain period of times. Their kids went through disastrous situation, abusive situations. How do we bring those people in?
1: And it was cannabis related?
0: Yes. And it was cannabis related.
1: Well, I think that's when we have those people we have, that's why we have groups that organizations and, you know, ideally when you join these cannabis groups, then you write to your legislator or whoever. It's like, that's why I learned better than just, Shout up and down like I learned. Okay, to contact people, who's in charge of this? Who's in charge? Let's contact these people directly. Yeah, and, and with a solution. Like, hey, we got this woman. I know, in the spirit of the legislation, we don't want to turn away this woman who went through this, you know, and stuff like that. So yeah, you know, I, that's when you have those type of things in organizations yeah. like that.
0: I just like to always um, play devil's advocate on that because I, I do think there needs to be an expansion on just looking at justice involved. I do believe that mass incarceration was, uh, again, disastrous for the community. But I think there were so many other losses that just like microaggressions, <laughs> there mm-hmm. are these, uh, these fractures in our community that came from all these different directions. that it's really difficult to, to limit it to the, just those who are incarcerated as far as. So what I'm not saying that I'm not yeah. saying that, though.
1: Because everybody who black and brown went through this type of uh, stigmatism because mm-hmm. they were on the hunt. For, it wasn't about weed. It was it was yeah. this was happening to us before weed. it's happening to us after legalization of weed. It's going to happen to us under some other guys. They passed the law that you couldn't sag your pants. They're after black skin. Right. So You know, anybody with black or brown skin and, and that brown is, is is I loved how that gentleman in the other interview who you did, he defined it yeah. to, black, to, to Afro Latinx. Because
0: that's, a,
1: that's important because yeah. they're because they're discriminating against people who look like us and they're over here and you and you're joining this movement. But then you don't want to include those folks as, you know, Caribbean, you know, or I mean, uh, as uh, Latin, you know, so they have to be called Afro Latin. Mm-hmm. Anywhere you find black folks, they got to put the Afro in front of it when a lot of us have, have indigenous long heritage in these places.
0: hmm. Yeah, it, it's it's very it's really difficult to wrap your arms around what what this reparations or what this inclusion should look like. I'm always looking in the periphery of like, you know, what did it do to the whole community? And that's why when we started talking social equity and we were talking about impacted areas and down to zip codes and things like that, over, over-policing zip codes and geographies impacted by over-policing and doing it that way. That was one strategy, but it had a cha- its challenges too, because some people... They've already come up, or some people weren't impacted, but they're in the right zip codes, or they're living that zip code now after gentrification. And then there's the you know dormant commerce clause issue, where you know people out of state are saying it's not fair, it's against the constitution for you to give priority to people based on geography. So it's it's something that we we definitely can't solve on on this call. But I so appreciate your perspective, with regards to having been someone who's justice involved, having been someone who's been an activist and and really has been solution minded and challenged regulators in, in in a healthy way to to drive things forward. At the end of the day there's a lot that can be learned from that as far as what does forward look like and really being solutions minded and not just jumping up and down and not really Talking mm-hmm. about what the future that you want to see, because you'll be doing that every single session. But I, I appreciate the, your sacrifice and what you suffered to get you to this point. And I look forward to you being having a successful and, if not, multiple cannabis businesses because you deserve it and you did pay mm-hmm. the price. And so we thank you for that. Especially those of us like myself who I didn't necessarily pay that price or pay the price the same way that that you did. But I, I have to again use my privilege. and and be an activist for those people who can't or don't know how to speak for themselves. Now, what I usually do at the end of my show, there's two questions I ask people. The first one is, what can Terps in the City do? What can our audience do to really elevate your movement and support you?
1: Well, yeah, you definitely have to protect and insulate people like myself. We are the dysfunctional class, the class that was never accepted. And we aren't politically correct, and there's doing. There's a lot of different language, and it's it's, it's deep waters. Like in my program in the program that my wife created, the the Excel part, like in, in my own, I'm in an equity program myself, and then I guess you would call it an equity program. But I bought my own team. I bought I bought five different professionals to help me lift up a product. You know, product develop people who had over 20 years experience in the field, because it's over your head. It's over your head, and you have to. We have to protect one another and we have to lift us up and into the scene. Everybody ain't going to get in, but we can't. My my, and my grandfather was in the liquor industry. He was bootlegging liquor. That's how he bought that house, all cash, my my aunt told me. He built that house that we live in still today, that my mother lives in, so this is a Freeport, New York, all cash from bootlegging. And Blacks got kind of pushed out of that.
0: Absolutely. Was- absolutely. We want to make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah. So giving in insulation it. and protection to someone who is a loud voice in the community—that's that's kind of what. I'm <laughs> gonna, gonna tell do. you this. Even though I'm talking against activists, it, it
1: really—I'm gonna tell you. I'm honestly, it feels somewhat good because when people regard me as that—that that they mean I'm saying something on behalf of other people, and I, I like to be regarded as that. That's a, a good legacy to leave. That you. But I'm not trying to. I'm not. That's not my goal. My goal is business. You know, here. You know, in this space. Yeah. You know. You know, but it feels it feels it feels it feels it doesn't feel bad, you know, when people say that, oh, you're an activist, or they see something I've done and say, Okay, you're an activist in this space, you know, because I know the true meaning behind it. And we've had arrests and stuff. So maybe we, we are we have been doing real activism and stuff. So
0: awesome. Well, I, I thank you for your work and your perspective. It takes all perspectives to move this thing forward. And I know you you have traveled for for the movement, you have um, spoken out. You've sometimes been ostracized, but we appreciate all of that. And my last question for today is, if there's anyone in the world that you could meet, if we could facilitate that, who would you meet if you could meet anyone in, in living in the world today?
1: So, it would have to be like the other young lady said, I love Oprah to death, man. Yes. <laughs> she is my hero. I promise you, when I heard you ask the other I was like, oh, I, I know who I'm going to say. I know who I yeah. want to know and then she said i like she done took my win i was like i got to think of somebody else and i was like no no
0: oprah's that's a good call out i mean i love Oprah the depth and um, just just isn't wait an advisor she could be on your board Uh, she could be an investor she could just be like a mentor like Anything, any access to, to Oprah and her knowledge, and uh, she can be an introducer, a connector for you. Wow. Yeah. So, Do literally, I'm here in NYC, hear the sirens behind me and stuff. That's the television sound, like when people are doing things in New York. So, you got it right here live. But yeah, Oprah is a great choice. Actually, our producer, Dan, like when uh, when Imani said in a previous show, said, Oprah. He was like I was so surprised that no one said Oprah up until this point because she is she's bad like yeah. she she's the whole package she has hustled. she came from nothing like there's so much I would just like to sit and listen to her even though I've heard her story but tell her story again and and just drop some like this is my business plan this is my high level <laughs> strategy for life this is where my my Yeah going. oh my god to hear what she says, so that I think that's a good call out, and hopefully Oprah's listening, and and then she can actually hang out with you and Imani based on that. But I, I really believe in their less than six degrees of separation, especially in Black community, especially in cannabis community. Usually it's like one degree for the most part, two degrees maximum. So I believe in speaking things into existence and and that they can happen. So I want to thank you today for your time, Mar. And I feel like we're going to have to catch up soon because it seems like you're at a a critical part of your journey where like there's going to be so many updates between now and like in the next couple months based on the stuff that you're doing. So many blessings. I support you. you. I'm looking forward to celebrating your success. I'll be cheering on the sidelines. And I look forward to seeing you again in person. Yeah, you're, thank you. Thank you. Hopefully I'll see you
1: next week um, if you be out this way. But yeah, thank yeah, you.
0: Absolutely. So thank you to our audience listener. Uh, this is Terps in the City. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, please, you can email me. The information will be in the call notes. If you're interested in being on the show, very I'm very accessible. Find me on all the socials, Cheryl Murray Powell or uh, on Instagram at VirtueN with the letter N victory. And I look forward to, you know, doing more of this work. I am a journalist as well as being an attorney. I love elevating uh, voices that you don't traditionally hear. And these people I have on the show, they're actually my friends. They're like my people. So I am very fortunate to have the circle that I have around me. So thanks for tuning into Terps in the City, and I'll see you next time.